Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning again. Great to see so many colleagues in the room, faculty members. I understand uh, as uh, the president calls a good murderous row of folks in the space. <laughs> It is wonderful to be here yet again. Uh, I was telling uh, Dr. Aiken that um, I think I slept uh, more last night than I had uh, two nights previous combined, uh, which is a good thing because as soon as I arrive, the first person I will see from my family is my son when I pick him up this morning, I mean this afternoon. Uh, And once that begins, as you can imagine, everything begins. So today, I want to uh, dovetail a little bit into more specifics as it relates to um, uh, academics, into uh, theological education. Uh, I've actually slightly tweaked the title. The, The title that you would see in your bulletin says, The Gumbo Pot, Christian Community as a Complex Brew. And of course, I still hold to that. However... I've uh, reframed the title to read this, The Gumbo Pot, Theological Education as a Complex Brew. And I'll be saying a whole lot more on that subject. So if we could bring up, uh, I started yesterday with uh, the first two statements that you see there, a statement and a question, my faith is stronger today, I unpack that, Uh, you seem smart, why are you a Christian, I unpack that. Today, I frame this conversation, this lecture, with two additional questions. But were they saved? And why study African-American Christianity? But were they saved? And why study African-American Christian experience? Uh, I'll begin unpacking the first, and then the second question I'll address Uh, later in the talk. These questions, truth be told, encourage me to be attentive to language and the ways our social locations and our presuppositions shape what we think and what we say. Let us consider again this first question. It came to me in 2004, and it's worth noting that each question came in kind of chronological order. The first statement in 1996, the second question in uh, uh, 1997, the third, but were they saved, in in 2004, and then the last in 2009, and a different variation in 2011. So in 2004, when I was an eager first-year Ph.D. student at Rice University, uh, this question was... uh, aimed at me. During uh, the first week of classes, I was at that time an adjunct professor uh, at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston, 
for those of you who know it or don't know it, uh, the College of Biblical Studies is a smaller Bible college uh, that was uh, initiated uh, some years ago to address the needs of uh, African-American clergy in that community who would not have normally had the opportunity to attend uh, such prestigious uh, institutions of higher learning like Southeastern Baptist Seminary or Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, they are connected at this point with Dallas Theological Seminary in, in very uh, substantive ways and have grown in part due to that connection. I was uh, a fresh graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary and thus, of course, acceptable to teach at the College of Biblical Studies. And it was in this conversation with a uh, woman who was a sweet, sweet lady, I forget her name, who was an admin assistant there at the College of Biblical Studies. So the conversation was something like this. Um, this evening, she was inquiring as to my interest in studying Christianity, studying the lives, most specifically, of African-American Christians. She asked why I would even pursue a Ph.D. in general, given that my master's degree from DTS already allowed me to teach at CBS anyway. And since, in her mind, that's where I was going to stay, why do I need a Ph.D.? And why I had chosen, if I was going to pursue a Ph.D., why had I chosen not just a secular institution, but in her mind, a institution that was the bastion of liberalism in Houston, Texas, Rice University, to engage this study. I could see where this line of questioning was going. After all, just a few weeks before, uh, several of my Dallas Theological Seminary uh, colleagues, former students, um, had laid hands on me in the parking lot after my final class at Dallas where I told them that I would be pursuing a PhD at Rice University. Uh, they laid hands because they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that I kept my Jesus. Even one of my mentors, Crawford Loritz, uh, I'm very close friends with Brian Loritz who uh, was recently here. Uh, we brought Crawford that first year uh, uh, while I was an adjunct at CBS, College of Biblical Studies, uh, to come give a lecture and preach. And Crawford saw me there, and he knew I had uh, been a great friend to his son. He had been a mentor to me by extension. And he asked, he put his, his hands on my shoulders, and he looked at me, peering into my eyes deeply, and he said, I understand you're going to Rice. Are there any good evangelicals there? And I said, I don't know, sir, but I'll find out. This well-meaning sister sister in Christ, was not only concerned about the maintenance of my salvation, she was also concerned about what I studied. She saw perhaps little value in a study as I laid it out, a deep, critical engagement with African-American experience and history in this country around the issue of conversion to Christianity. These issues, these questions, merely formed the backdrop to the question that she asks above. But were they saved? Disclosed something more. This question disclosed to me something more. I laid out all of the exciting avenues and vistas that this course of study would take. 
I laid out for her the slave narratives that I had already begun looking at and seeing this wonderful nuggets, these wonderful nuggets of faith uh, that grew out of dire eyes. But were they saved was her only question. A cultural, social, theological disconnection to the experiences outside of her own is what was laced within this question. And I did not charge this disconnection to her heart. She had a good one. She was a lovely person, and we were actually close. She was kind of like a motherly figure to me. As I do not believe she was coming from a bad place. She was coming from a good one. I charged it to this a lack of intimate connection with the other. She knew me, but she didn't quite know the full extent of my experiences. She did not know the faith trajectory of my family. She did not know of the faith experiences of myself growing up in Los Angeles, California, some of those things that I had laid out yesterday. In fact, my experiences were foreign to her for, uh, social location. She didn't see the value, therefore, in studying African-American Christianity or trying to figure out why so many enslaved African and African-Americans would have converted in the first place to this faith that she and I now shared. Unless my study was within the context of a saving faith through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, why study it at all? If a saving faith is what slaves disclosed, then perhaps this course of study would have been legitimate. I said to her, well, I'm sure that many slaves professed a saving faith. But given the context, I wanted to peer deeper as to why so many would profess this saving faith. That occasion forced me to reconsider the song that I at that point had been singing in my church many times over, taken from Psalm 117, the song goes, Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. In this psalm, all distinct nations are called to worship the Lord who is merciful to all of us. How do we account then for all ye nations. What do all ye nations look like? Does race, ethnicity, theological position, gender, uh, social and political experience play a role? What do we account for when we talk about all ye nations? This was an intriguing question to me. At an early age, I had been taught to see America as a great melting pot. One people under God with liberty and justice for all. This ideal often gets translated this way. One people, one history, one culture, one race within a post-race culture and society. In this marvelous melting pot, we are all common, by our, uh, common folks by our ideals, common aims, common opportunities, and common stories of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the church, under the loving care of one God, we are all one, one in the Lord. All of this sounds great, but what is the result? 
we are all blended into one flavor. And if the flavor suits your taste, then the flavor is great. But if you prefer, prefer something more or less bland, the question of suitability, of suitableness, comes into the fore. I believe that there will always be someone in the melting pot standing behind, looking over, trying to make sure the flavor suits one taste. This is the way diversity has long since been viewed. One folk, melting pot, one flavor. Yet what results are muted colors and tapestries that don't reveal the greatness of our differences. Therefore, I am more of a gumbo man. And if anyone knows gumbo, and I'm hoping that there are two or three of you in the room who do, and if you don't, I will be brewing a pot the week after Christmas as I do every year. We might have to make some exchange between our institutions down the I-40 corridor. Uh, it is not a neat or tidy dish. Thus, it is not a melting pot. Gumbo is a complex brew of flavors oddly coming together to form an exquisite experience of taste. Gumbo is cultural, to be sure. It is simultaneously uh, reflective of the roughness and robustness of life. It exhibits colorful expressions of a given community. Gumbo binds the community and is tied to a general posture of fellowship and cooperation. You just can't make a pot of gumbo without sharing it with a whole lot of folks. Through the sharing of personal stories and uh, uh, other uh, stories of faith and lament, through the sharing of this fellowship, these stories are transferred. Traditions are uncovered. New traditions are created. Ideas are swapped. Songs are sung. Bonds are formed. And connections of the heart and spirit are forged. I will come back to that to give an example. But what does this have to do with diversity? Let me begin by relaying an experience that uh, uh, started at my previous institution. This is going back to the uh, fourth statement or question. Uh, why should we study African-American Christianity? Uh, I was asked this question by a student. Uh, and, of course, the question went something to the effect of not just why do, should we study it, but in this day and age, what do we gain from kind of an African-American-centered anything, whether it be history or theology or uh, Christian history or anything for that matter? Such a line of question would later surface by another student, uh, concerned about one of my courses that she incorrectly labeled as a class on black theology. It was actually a class on, uh, uh, it, was, it was a social study of the church and the church's impact in com uh, culture and society. I had chosen one book by a black theologian, and she said, ah, this is a class on black theology. Now, she questioned me and uh, wondered how this book, and by extension this class, would help her in her own ministry context. Notwithstanding the misplaced concern of the students, both of them, the issue, as I saw it, went beyond a lack of understanding. What institutions face, theological and otherwise, from students and faculty, from administration and trustees, is a limited construal 
of what passes as worthy subject matter to study. What then gets lost time and again is the value that comes from drawing, drawing from various cultural tools that allow us a fuller access into the multifaceted experiences of Christian peoples in this country. What does it mean for us to engage in this type of dialogue, in this type of space, in this day and age? What are the grander implications of having to debate diversity in an extra, uh, in an era that we might all consider a better era than previous eras as it relates to race relations? Are institutions simply seeking to compress all people into a single category, making the issue of race obsolete? And does it mean that theological institutions are complicit, or complicit advocates even, in a post-race ideology that compels us to believe that race simply no longer matters, that our country is finally disconnected from its stained past of oppression, and that the proof of this post-race society is inextricably tied to the socioeconomic gains that some black and brown peoples in this country now share. True, an Obama presidency, even in the later stages of it, um, and other advances uh, are usable linguistic starting points, but we should not let them muffle conversations around real and complex diversity. The story of diversity in higher education uh, is not an easy one to tell. For example, at my own institution, racial minorities make up 24% of undergraduate student body, 18% though if we were to extract out international students from that total number. Roughly 7% of those first year students are first generation college students. With respect to faculty, as of 2013, 4% were black, 3% were Hispanic, 11% Asian, which includes faculty from all the professional schools. Um, of 18 current senior administration, it's administrators, only one is a racial minority. For us, this may be progress, but that this, this does not reflect the world that our students will face when they leave our hallowed halls. Our silence, therefore, about diversity may also have unintended consequences. In his book, Racial Paranoia, uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, professor of anthropology, John Jackson, considers these unintended consequences as connected to political correctness. He argues that even though we have moved from an accepting overtly racist rhetoric in the public sphere, our racial divisions become more, have become more entrenched in this day and age. In short, just because the public language about race has been sanitized, this does not mean that the issue of race has been transcended. In fact, ideals about racial difference are fortified within homogenized spaces of our own homes or separate silos. As a result, racial tension begins to bubble up under the surface and uh, no one has a real good concrete language on how to address these issues. Choosing the easy way out, he argues that we retreat into our separate corners of comfort and fortify our racial differences without even knowing it. 
Rather than confronting fears and stereotypes or working through the complexities of our differences, we give way to ourselves, often to our worse selves. In the end, our intentions uh, with other people are no longer intentions that are good faith. They are, uh, and, and as long as we approach each other in this way, real diversity cannot be manifested, he argues. It seems to me, therefore, that Howard Thurman offers a useful model uh, for addressing diversity that may begin to yield some results as we apply this model to uh, theological education. Thurman was himself a theologian. He was a former dean of the chapel at Boston University. He was the pastor of one of the first racially diverse megachurches in uh, our country, uh, and he held to an organic construal of diversity based upon a shared religious experience. Uh, in his framework, diversity could not be measured or forced or legislated. If forced, he would argue, diversity will at best be established with all deliberate speed to coin the ambiguous language used by the Supreme Court justices in the Brown v. Board of Education decision. And if intentional language to legislate diversity is slow or ineffective to produce a required change, we end up with diversity solely as a cheap catchphrase. We are then left with an institution whose students, staff, faculty, administration, and trustees are beguiled by notions of diversity they assume are part of the fabric of the institution. But alas, it isn't. Thurman's approach to parish diversity thus becomes instructional. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Thurman considers, considers Jesus in terms of the diversity that he himself embodied. For Thurman, the historical and theological Jesus must be reattached to Jesus' Jewish roots. In this connection, we may begin to see the possibilities of difference. Jesus is thus culturally expressed by way of his social position as uh, a Jew that didn't have great means, uh, a Jew who would have been a minority in a dominant culture, in a dominant Roman culture. Thurman's goal was to clearly delineate what Jesus had to do to transform the lives of the disinherited peoples, both within his camp and outside of his camp, those who were the underprivileged, while working in cooperation, in cooperation, shall I say, and in connection with those in authority. It is impossible to understand Jesus, as he argues, outside of the community of Israel, the community that he is connected to by God. On the one hand, Jesus shares the covenantal inheritance along with the rest of the nation, the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And now, of course, these covenants are very important to me as one trained in this, in, as a progressive dispensationalist, but that's another lecture, and maybe we can talk about that over lunch. On the other hand, Jesus was positioned to also critique the negative character of the self-aggrandizement that could accompany these covenantal inheritances, even as he himself embodies the one who fulfills them. He shared in the same economic predicament as the poor people of Jewish descent under Roman rule, and thus he was positioned not just to relate well to them, but to also uh, 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 connect with a people who were striving for more, to be heard, 
who were discriminated against. His relationship with the dominant class was respectful and cooperative, however, without compromising his personal dignity or his labor for the advancement of all people. And yet, he would be sacrificed by his own and esteemed by God over all. These features give us a picture of Jesus' method of diversity in a tense culture, as opposed to the methods of the Sadducees, which was to be more like the Romans, or to become culturally isolated because of Roman domination, or to show contempt instead of constructively resisting, or to engage in armed resistance, Jesus expressed an alternative formula for working out the kingdom of heaven within and in cooperation with diverse people groups. The task was never easy or clean and was often nonsensical to the disciples. But Jesus' in, intentional work to create a diverse community without or within, excuse me, the kingdom of God cannot be understated. For Thurman, true diversity fights against the dual threat of fear and hatred, while ushering in love, not simply tolerance, for the other within one's community. Fear promotes differences among communities through isolation. And in doing this, each community remains locked in their own respective cultural and social boxes, blind to the value that comes with complexity. Hatred always has the potential to surface when there is no contact and real fellowship. And without fellowship, we are granted no opportunity for sympathy toward the others. And the result, according to Thurman, is ill will. Thurman therefore holds that through Jesus, Jesus' love, and how it steps on the scene in a dominant culture, not a romanticized idea of love, but rather a moral obligation is the path toward true diversity and inclusion. Central to love's ability to impact the academy uh, 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 and communities is its mandate for selflessness. In fact, according to Thurman, one must not love his or her enemy per se. One must uh, take the initial step in love to attack another's, another person's status as the enemy altogether. Without regard to previous pain inflicted, we are to approach one another as kinsmen, leaving to, uh, leaving to work through the things that we have created out of tension, allowing love to come in that space, into that ferment, and change those tensions altogether. The key here is, Thurman advances a way of thinking about diversity without a denial of the painful experiences that bring complex groups together. In, uh, uh, this is an acknowledgement of diversity as being messy business. It can even be uncomfortable, but in nature, while it is uncommon, it is through Christ that we can find it. The desire for complex diversity, therefore, cannot solely be forced or legislated. It must be experienced and lived. We might say that it must spread as a contagion would spread, from student to student, faculty member to faculty member, 
This vision must be enacted in the meetings held by administration and trustees or even lauded at the Thanksgiving tables at the students when they go home to be with their families. In the end, this contagion of complex diversity is spread from heart to heart, from mouth to mouth, until it draws those unaware to become a part of a grander community. I am articulating, therefore, a spicing up of the flavor of theological education. So I'd like to return to this metaphor of gumbo, if I may. From prep to consumption, the gumbo pot demonstrates the wonders of diversity in theological education. At first glance, the diversity of Jesus seemed to promote among his people uh, an unsightly vision of diversity, bringing together all these strange folks. It called for the convergence of different ethnicities, perspectives, cultures, and innermost desires. One cannot help but find a similar uh, situation happening in the gumbo pot. Consider its components. Uh, I make gumbo every year, so I'll lay out some of those right now for those who are unaware. First, good gumbo takes at least two days to prepare. It is hard work. That's why every year my wife says, I will never make gumbo in my life. I don't even want to be around you. When you start it, you get tense, and it takes you too long to do it. One must first create the stock, and this is why it takes two days, at least when I make it, because I utilize, I'm giving away some secrets here, uh, and I know this is going to be streaming, but uh, oh well. Uh, uh, the day before, I take the carcass of the Thanksgiving turkey, which I have frozen since Thanksgiving Day. And I uh, uh, get those bones and all that good gristle and cartilage, and I boil that with a bunch of spices to construct the stock. Uh, this is a very important element, and it has to be done the night before or the day before so that then you can freeze the stock once you're done, scrape off the fat the next morning, and that becomes the base. So, uh, as I said, it takes two days. You create the stock. And uh, this is in the important base of the cuisine. Sure, you can purchase pre-canned stock, but it just isn't the same. And I found that out as I started making gumbo every year. When you've prepared the stock, then you need to prepare the roux. That is R-O-U-X. Uh, and to prepare the, the, the roux, you have to be deliberate because this is the critical component of the brew. The roux is what brings this liquid base of the stock or broth into the thickened gumbo texture. It is a concoction of uh, uh, oil and fat and flour and butter. I know all things that don't sound good for us. But the roux is, uh, requires a tedious preparation and patience to get it just right. Then you must get the spices right. The spicing of gumbo becomes the central space where one's artistry takes form. Its, it's imprecision from year to year of preparation um, or, you know, imprecision from one year to the next is not considered a fault, but rather imprecision adds to the beauty of the delicacy. The secrets carried in those spaces and in those spices become for the preparer a badge of honor. This is why I did not break down the spices. It's a badge of honor. Can't let you know. 
What results is a complex brew of flavors, not a melting pot of one. Upon completion, gumbo has an ethereal effect. It is almost otherworldly. Through difference and paradox, it itself creates community. Over the life of a given gumbo pot, the gumbo flavors kind of subtly change, and they do this progressively. Gumbo is not a simple dish, but it is a unique experience. It is a culture in and of itself as it is also created and related to culture. It pushes back against what is normative or commonplace to find new flavors. This is why it changes from year to year. It is, in fact, a diverse community of foods and spices that create a spectacular, singular whole. It utilizes all the components of itself, the good and the bad, the odd and the wondrous. In the same way, the distinctive stories of different Christian communities are not ancillary. Even social group, uh, uh, every social group, class, race, or ethnicity has something to contribute to the grander narrative of our community of faith. Our institutions must reflect this. The world our students will face reflects this. If we shun the study of those distinct communities of faith for a melting pot approach, those communities will remain marginal, alien, or othered. In the end, a love and an appreciation for complexity, difference, and the other work together to create a better whole. But how do we get there? I'd like to suggest a, full, a few concrete steps. Number one, we should promote on-campus deliberative dialogue around issues of difference. This is an important first step. This does not legislate anything. What this does is promotes a public coming together of folks within and some outside of the community who are interested in the community. These should be public dialogues where we learn how to listen to each other, to hear what the other is thinking, not on the surface, but actually on the inside. This is not necessarily to make statements that this is a safe space. I've had to uh, uh, stop uh, making such statements even in my classes. Uh, I realize that uh, in theological education, especially in once we bring in all of our experiences, social, cultural, and otherwise, that these are not necessarily safe spaces, but are wonderful spaces for critical engagement that will be training spaces for us when we leave the, leave the halls. Number two, we should recruit, our institutions should recruit and retain diverse students, faculty, staff, and administration. I was excited to hear over dinner and in conversations yesterday with uh, Dr. Aiken and, and other faculty members, uh, and even in conversation, uh, I, I talked to Brian Loritz uh, uh, after my talk yesterday, all the things that Southeastern is doing to recruit uh, more students and what Southeastern is trying to do to uh, more broadly address issues of difference and diversity. Uh, inclusion takes root with the presence of different folks, different individuals, 
who bring different backgrounds, life experiences, and perspectives to the community. As I tell my students, this is not touchy-feely stuff. This is preparation for real-world experiences in a world that is influenced by many, many things. For example, we can no longer even assume that people are biblically literate anymore or literate in the same way that they once were. There was a time you could go to a church and preach and uh, uh, make a statement uh, about, you know, some anecdotal connection to the Bible, uh, uh, whether it be uh, uh, the apple on the tree that Adam and Eve, you know, on the tree of knowledge, right? And everyone in the room would get it. These days in our culture, you uh, make reference to Adam and Eve and folks have no idea what you're talking about. And that's an easy one, right? So we cannot assume that when folks come into our theological institutions, they are as biblically literate as they once were. Number three, address and make changes in structural inequity. This includes a rethinking of old policies and structures that facilitate fragmentation in our institutions. Changes in structure must accompany changes in attitudes um, for this to be, uh, for our institutions to be truly inclusive climates where each individual student, administration, faculty, and staff can flourish. This is what begins to help those from underrepresented backgrounds to have more of a fruitful experience at our institutions and allows them a space to disclose fully who they are, knowing that they would be at least respected and listened to. Lastly, strengthen preparation for global citizenship. Inclusive attitudes and skills must be formally taught in our classrooms in order to shore up a diverse and inclusive community. It can't just be, and this is some of the conversations uh, uh, we've been promoting at Wake Forest. I'm on um, a couple of working groups and, and committees addressing uh, issues of difference at our institution. It can't just be the professor or professors of color to address these issues. This needs to be, like I described as uh, in terms of a contagion, this needs to be shared amongst all faculty and teachers and instructors on campus. This must therefore happen on some level at the curricular stage. And we must therefore have faculty buy-in for this effort within each program unit and with each, within each department of the institution. These four things, I think, are critical for us to advance this narrative about diversity and inclusion so that folks aren't just brought into our institutions because they uh, fulfill a slot, but folks can flourish and thrive, uh, flourish, excuse me, and thrive in our institutions. And our institutions can draw from their gifts. There is a funny thing in closing about the gumbo pot. Uh, I recall a few years ago when I made my first pot in Pennsylvania. I was dropping my second daughter, Charlie, off uh, at that time uh, at daycare. 
And I overheard a woman in the other side, on the other side of the room talking to one of the teachers, saying that she had recently uh, moved with her family from California. Of course, I perked up. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I approach her and I say, hey, uh, did I hear you say you're from California? She says, yes. We leave the space, leaving our daughters behind, and we talk in the hallway outside for I don't know how long. Strangers in the hallway, one black male, one white female, talking about our shared connections as Southern Californians. We would exchange contact information, and later that night, uh, we had only exchanged emails, and later that night I uh, had emailed her. I had just finished my gumbo pot, and I asked my wife when I got home, I said, you know, I, I met this great, um, uh, this great sister and, uh, who has a daughter who goes to our daughter's uh, preschool, and I, I really think we should try to reach out and meet these folks, get to know these folks. Now, if you know my wife, my wife is a little bit more cautious. You know, I'm the open one. I love to meet new people, and I'm just that type of person. My wife says, you know, it's like you're running for office. You like to kiss the babies and meet everybody. That's, that's how I am. Uh, my wife is not that way. Uh, and out of respect, I know this is being videoed. I'll stop there. <laughs> but she did say that day what she uh, says often. She says, how do we know these people aren't crazy? We don't know who these people are. I don't know if I want to meet these folks. I said, no, no, no. I really think these are some good folks for us to meet. So she says, all right, fine. Contact them if you want. I don't know if I'll meet them the initial time. I'll let you have a conversation with the family one more time before I decide if I want to bring m myself and my children around these people. So I make contact. I send uh, her an email. She responds right back the same day. And I said, you know, we, we should get our families together. Uh, I, I think it would be great to reminisce about old times of being in and from California. She says, absolutely. I'd love for uh, uh, my husband and I and our daughter to, to meet your family. I said, well, you know what? I've just brewed a pot of gumbo. And I kind of stopped it there. And she responded and said, wow, that sounds interesting, but I don't know what gumbo is. I said, all the better. How about you all come to our place, and then I thought about my wife, or we come to your place, and I will bring the pot, and we will share it family to family. At the time, I didn't want to tell her that my wife had refused to come. And so we did. I entered their home with this big pot. They pulled out uh, 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 bowls. By that time, her husband had uh, looked online to see what gumbo was, and he said, I'm very excited about uh, exchanging this dish. What did the gumbo pot do? It made our community larger and more robust. It introduced us as a group of people to new ideas. That night I would stay at their home by myself, and then the next day, I would bring the family over, but that first night I was there with people I had never met except for a brief conversation a couple days before. I would stay over there over two hours just talking about shared ideals, shared values, religion, faith, race. We would expand our cultural and social circles in that space 
that was new to both families. We were both new to Pennsylvania. We've both since moved our family here, their family actually back to California. And so we've expanded our territories, culturally and geographically. We have created new friendships that are now enduring friendships. They are, in fact, like family to us. And in the end, if we bring up the image again of my book cover, the artist of my cover, if it's up there, is the husband who that day I shared gumbo with. Vaughn and Jen Sumner are some of the most wonderful people we would meet in Pennsylvania and some of the most dear friends we have. And they are Lily White. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I've got white friends. It's a whole other thing to know people on the human level. This is what the gumbo pot did. So, what am I offering? What I'm offering this morning is a way for us to really think through how we embrace the others. A way not only for us to engage what we don't know, even though we might ask questions like, why is it even worth it to study this? But also, when those questions come, a way to respond in an affirming fashion so that we might see the value of difference. No, a gumbo, I mean, excuse me, a melting pot is not inherently a bad thing. I just prefer the flavors, the distinctiveness, and the complexity that comes with the gumbo pot. Because were it not for the gumbo pot, I would not have some enduring friendships, both on the right and on the left, that catapult me to where I am today. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.